you guys can go ahead and play the video. When you think of the phrase unreached countries, what do you think? Do you think of countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, North Korea, Cambodia? Those are all countries with great spiritual needs, but there's actually one that has fewer evangelical Christians than any of those, but probably most people would not think of it as being unreached. And that's Poland with 0.2% evangelical Christians. Poland is a country with a long, rich history that is closely tied with the Catholic Church. In 966, Poland was established as a country when its king was baptized into the Catholic Church. And today, Poland is considered the most practicing Catholic country in the world. Around 93% of Polish people claim to be Catholic, and around 50% attend Mass at least once a week. For many people in Poland, to be Polish is to be Catholic, and anything outside of Catholicism is considered a cult. And we feel that God has called us as missionaries. Hello, we are Tim and Claire Peterson, and we are both missionary kids. Claire grew up in Hong Kong, where her parents, David and Marcia Darlin, are still serving today. And I grew up in Poland, where I saw firsthand the great needs and great spiritual darkness of the Polish people. However, seeing those needs did not make me want to go back to Poland. In fact, just the opposite. I did not want to spend my life preaching and working year after year with no guarantee of results. Instead, I wanted to come back to the States, major in engineering, and pursue a career in that field. But God had a different plan for me. During my senior year of high school, he gave me a burden I could not ignore. He made me think, how could I go back and live my life in the States, having seen these great needs firsthand, and tell others about the great spiritual darkness and the need for the gospel in Poland, and yet not be willing to come back myself. And it was at that point that I knew God was calling me to return to Poland as a missionary. I came to the U.S. and attended Bob Jones University, which is where I met Claire, where we served together every week at a children's Bible club. And it was there that I saw her heart for the ministry. We were married in 2014, and in 2017, I graduated with my MDiv from BJU. In 2018, we spent 10 months in Poland serving as short-term missionaries with Gospel Fellowship Association. And while we were there, we had three main goals. First, we wanted to dive into language study. I was conversationally fluent, but having been gone for 10 years, my Polish was very rusty. Plus, I had never had any formal grammar study. So I wanted to work on that and also improve my vocabulary and language skills in general. Second, we also wanted to help and encourage my parents and the people in their church, and then also serve as furlough replacements for my parents while they were in the States for a couple months, which meant that I got to preach in Polish, which was a little bit rough at times, but a great experience overall. Then finally, we wanted to learn from other missionaries and Polish pastors there. Besides my parents' church, we were able to visit seven other churches and spend some time in each one getting to know the Polish pastor or missionary pastor who was there and asking them lots of questions. It was so encouraging to meet and fellowship with other believers in different parts throughout Poland. 
but it was also very sobering because we realized even more clearly how few gospel preaching churches there are throughout the country and how isolating it can be for them. This map shows all the different counties in Poland. All the red areas represent places with at least one gospel preaching assembly. Darker red means more of them. The white counties are all the counties without any gospel preaching church. 2,200 out of nearly 2,500 counties. That's almost 90%. 90% of the communities have no gospel preaching assembly. Do you remember before how we said that only 0.2% of Poland claims to be evangelical? That would actually include evangelical or Protestant of any kind, which would include groups like Lutherans, Seventh-day Adventists, and Pentecostals, not all of which really teach the full gospel. Poland truly is an unreached country. They may know who Jesus is and have access to the Bible, but their hearts are still in darkness. So what are our plans? We are planning on returning to Poland as career missionaries with Gospel Fellowship Association, and our first priority is to get the language down. Polish is a very difficult language, and getting mastery of it is vital in order to reach and minister to the people there. Other missionaries have advised us to spend the majority of our first term studying Polish. That's either what they did or what they wish they had done. During our first term, we'll be working with my parents and their church, which will give us the ability to help out some, but also have time and enough freedom to devote ourselves to language study. We will also be looking for opportunities for future outreach. Claire has a degree in English education with an emphasis on teaching English as a second language, and we are hoping that she'll be able to use English teaching as a way to get into the community and get to know people. We will also be praying about what the Lord would have us do after our first term. There are many possibilities. We might continue working with my parents at their church. We might work alongside a Polish pastor, or if the Lord provides teammates, we might plant a church of our own. So how can you pray? Pray that we would be able to raise support quickly. Pray that God would raise up more laborers to go to Poland and raise up laborers from within Poland. Pray that God would strengthen the current believers there in Poland and provide Christian resources. And finally, pray that God would open the hearts and minds of the Polish people to the gospel. The task is daunting. From a human perspective, it seems impossible. But with God, all things are possible. video mentioned, I grew up as a missionary kid in Hong Kong, and I loved growing up there. It was truly my home. And something that the video didn't mention is actually that my mom grew up in Hong Kong as well. She was also a missionary kid. So my family has been in Hong Kong um, since the early 1960s. So we have a long 
connection with Hong Kong. And um, growing up, I really wanted to be able to come back to Hong Kong after I knew I would come back to the U.S. to attend university, but I really wanted to be able to come back to Hong Kong after that. Um, and one of the things that I got to do when I was in high school in Hong Kong was teach English as a second language. And through that, I discovered that I loved teaching, um, I loved English, and I knew that teaching English as a second language could open up doors pretty much anywhere in the world, but especially in Hong Kong. And so I thought, okay, this is perfect. I can come back to the U.S., study teaching English as a second language, and then I'll be able to use that in Hong Kong um, to support myself and then be involved in ministry, and everything will be great. So that was my plan. And I came back to the U.S. I attended Bob Jones University. I studied English education with teaching English as a second language. Um, but as I was at BJU, I also started getting involved in a lot of missions-related things. And so then, you know, I started learning about all these other countries and their great spiritual needs. And so I started thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe I should keep an open mind. I don't want to go back to Hong Kong just because it's the most comfortable thing for me or it makes the most sense in my mind. I want to know for sure that what I'm doing is what God wants me to do, where he's leading me. And so I tried to keep an open mind. Um, I considered a lot of different places. I thought about Turkey, Papua New Guinea, Ghana, Mongolia, South Korea, all these different countries. But one country that I never thought of was Poland until Tim became interested in dating me. And he knew that he was going to Poland. So I had to think, okay, so if we date and we end up getting married, that means that you would go to Poland too. So what about Poland? And my thought was, mm, no, I do not want to go to Poland. <laughs> um, even though I had never been to Poland, I had an idea of what Poland was like in my mind, and it just didn't match what I thought my life should look like. So I said, no, I don't want to go to Poland, and I don't want to date Tim because of that. Um, but praise the Lord, he did work in my heart, and he helped me shift my perspective really on what life is all about. Um, and it was not an overnight change. It actually really took years. Um, but I think these quotes from Paul David Tripp really encapsulate what God taught me over the years. Paul David Tripp says, God will not forsake his sovereign plan of grace in order to deliver to you the comfort and pleasure-oriented life that you have dreamed of. Our personal goals, wishes, and dreams fall far short of God's plans and purposes for us. God will settle for nothing less than each of us being completely conformed to the image of his Son. And how do we know that? Well, there's a verse that we like to quote, Romans 8:28, but we often stop before verse 29, which I think is really the key to understanding what it's all about. So Romans 8:28 says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. What is that purpose? Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. So that's the purpose. That's what God wants for us. It is to be like Jesus Christ. And the way we become like Christ is by knowing Jesus Christ. But the problem is, as Paul Tripp points out, quote, 
what captures our hearts is the craving for a life that is comfortable, pleasurable, predictable, and problem-free. We tend to judge God's goodness based on how well life is working for us, rather than on his zeal to make good his redemptive promises to us. And I realized that what I had been aiming for was a life that was comfortable, happy, easy, and had all the things that I thought I needed. You know, it was kind of like I had a checklist. Okay, God, I need this thing in my life, and I need this thing in my life, and this thing in my life. And if you give me all those things, then I'll be good. But if I don't have those things, then it's not going to be good, and I won't be happy. And I had to realize, honestly, that's just not the way life works. That's not the way that God works in our lives. Um, Ultimately, we're not the ones who are in control of our lives. Even when we try our hardest to control everything, we're not in control. God is the one who is in control. And he has a purpose that is bigger than us staying comfortable or life going smoothly for us. His purpose is the greatest good for us, even though we might not always feel that way. Um, And I realized, too, that I had been judging God's goodness based on how well life was going for me. So I thought that if I was facing difficulty or experiencing pain, that God must not love me. And really, that was a lack of knowledge and trust in who God was, in his character, in trusting that he was really good. And so I was struggling to be willing to go to Poland because I didn't believe that he would really be good to me in Poland. I thought that would be a lesser plan for my life. I thought that what I had envisioned would be the best thing, and that going to Poland, you know, which was not what I envisioned at all, would be less, would be less than, and that I wouldn't experience the goodness of God there. And obviously that's not true at all, because the goodness of God is helping us know Jesus Christ and become more like Jesus Christ, which can happen anywhere in the world, but it happens when we say yes to what God is doing in our life. Um, And when we when we push against what God is doing and when we say, no, I don't want that, that's too hard, it's too painful, when we try to avoid what God is doing in our lives, then really we're, we're short-circuiting the work that he's doing and we're stunting our own growth. Um, but when we say yes, we're allowing him to work in our lives and change us and ultimately that's how we point other people to what a great God he is. And that's how we show that there's something bigger than just our own individual lives. It's not just about me and what's happening in my life and whether I feel like life is too hard or not. It's really bigger than that. And it's a privilege to be able to be part of what God is doing in the world. Um, And for me, that involves saying yes to going to Poland. You know, it's different for everybody, but... God is working in our lives, and often that is through difficulty and through pain, Um, but we can trust that he loves us and that he is good to us. Um, And it's not a one-time lesson uh, that you just learn once and then you're good forever after that. I have been working on learning it for years, and um, I feel like deputation in particular, the process of raising support and all that, 
has been challenging that again. Do I really trust that God is good? Do I really trust that God loves me and is doing what is best for me, even when it's not easy? Um, but I just praise the Lord that he is working in me, even when I'm struggling. And I, I can trust him because I know he's going to keep doing that when we're in Poland. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in me and also hopefully through me. I hope that I can point other people to what a great God he is. So I don't know about you, but for me, I really like to understand what makes something the way it is, or how it works, or why it is the way it is now. And for me, growing up in Poland, it was just assumed, well, it's Catholic just because Poland is Catholic. That's normal. But then afterwards, thinking about it, it's like, well, why is that? Why is Poland so Catholic? You have a lot of the rest of Europe is really going secular, pushing off religion, and yet Poland seems to be such a stronghold for Catholicism. And why is that? And so when I was starting to look into that and kind of doing a deep dive, found out that there wasn't just one thing that made Poland Catholic, but it's really their whole history that has played into it to make Poland the way it is now. And so in order to help you all understand that, I think we need to have a quick history lesson. So Polish History 101. I mean, this is University Baptist Church, so <laughs> we're going to have a quick history lesson, but I'll, I'll keep it brief. I also did want to mention that we will have a time for questions afterwards. So if something comes up that you think of, hang on to it, and then we'll try to get that answered as well. But Polish History 101. Well, it starts off from the very beginning. Poland was created as a country in 966 AD. And it was at that point that their king was baptized into the Catholic Church. So its inception and beginnings as being Catholic were over a thousand years ago. And that was pretty common in Europe. Whatever the monarch was, that's what the people were. State religion, just the way it was. And it continued that way for centuries up until the Protestant Reformation, which had a great impact in Western Europe and kind of swept through there, but never got a stronghold in Poland because the Catholic Church was able to put together a counter-reformation and have a response and kind of squelch any um, impact that the Reformation was having there in Poland. So Poland never changed from being almost completely, dominantly Catholic. And that continued again for centuries. Up until 1795, and at that point Poland was divided up by its neighbors, Prussia, Russia, and Austria. They divided it up said, you get this part, you get this part, and then they invaded and took it, took it over and wiped it off the map. And then for the next 123 years, there was no Poland on a world map. They did not have their own sovereignty, their own freedom. They didn't have their own territory, their own country. And so when you don't have a flag or a territory to rally around, you need something else to tie your identity to. You're not Polish because you come from Poland. You're Polish because you have Polish heritage. You're Polish because you speak Polish, because you are Catholic, because you have all these Polish Catholic traditions. It's what makes you 
who you are. Your identity becomes tied with it. Somewhat how the Jews, for so long, there was no sovereign nation of Israel, and yet they still identified as Jews, and part of being a Jew was practicing Judaism. And now there certainly would be exceptions to that, but as a rule, it's part of their identity. And something like that happened for the Polish people during that over a century where they didn't have their own sovereignty. Then finally, in 1918, Poland was reestablished as a country. This is the end of World War I. Europe's borders are being redrawn, and they're like, the Polish people are still there, still fighting, trying to have a revolution to regain their own independence, and so they're finally successful in getting their country back. But that was very short-lived, because 20 years later, again, they're divided up and invaded and taken over by Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. So they don't have their own freedom, their own sovereignty, and they're under foreign occupation. And then even at the end of World War II, when Western Europe is able to rebuild and um, recover from the war, Poland was handed over to Stalin basically as a peace offering for his contribution. So we appreciate all your help. You can have Poland, this territory. That'll be your your gift and your compensation for all your effort. And the Polish people were not in favor of that. That was not their choice, and they didn't have any say in the matter. They were really a pawn in the global democracy at the time. So again, they don't have their own sovereignty, their own freedom, and they need something to bind them together. And for many people, they turned to their faith as something that was theirs and something that could not be taken away from them. So communism and the Soviet Union was very much against religion at all, against Catholicism, and they tried to get rid of it. They tried to remove it from the Polish people, but they are, Polish people are very proud of the fact that they held on to it, that this was something that they held as uniquely theirs that could not be taken away from them. Even if they had no bread in the stores, if they had rations for everything else, you can take away all our supplies, but you can't take away our faith. This was something that held us together. And there was somebody who came on the scene that really strengthened that resolve and united the country and rallied them again around Catholicism, and that was Pope John Paul II, who was elected pope in 1978. He was well-loved as a pope by Catholics across the globe. He was very popular, very influential, very active, but he was especially loved by Poles because he himself was Polish and was very influential amongst the Polish people in kind of bringing them together. If you were to have a hierarchy of people in a Polish person's mind, I don't think it would be exaggeration to say basically you would have Jesus, Mary, Pope John Paul II, They have statues of him in their churches. You go to the grocery store, you'll find calendars with his picture. At at the post office, you might see a little shrine to him with a candle burning. Uh, He is very highly revered and loved. We were watching a video uh, on a Polish YouTube channel, and they were, it's for practicing Polish. They have English and Polish subtitles, and the video was titled, Seven Things to Not Do When You Visit Poland. One of the top seven things to not do is criticize Pope John Paul II because that will be taken as a personal attack on them and 
somebody who's, who's their guy. So Pope John Paul II was very influential in kind of uniting and rallying the country again around Catholicism. Then finally, in 1989, the Iron Curtain falls and Poland is able to regain their own independence. And so basically, you look at that, from 1795 down to 1989, for 200 years, the Polish people had been fighting for their own sovereignty, for their own independence, and one of the things that united them together, and especially in the last several decades, was their faith, was Catholicism. And so for the Polish people to depart from that, to leave the Catholic faith, is not just turning your back on what you believe, but it's turning your back on your heritage, what makes you Polish. And so it can very easily be taken as just a betrayal to your family and to everything that makes you who you are. And then Pope John Paul II continued to have influence until his death in 2005. So like I said at the beginning, there's not just one thing that made Poland Catholic, but it's their over a thousand year history of Catholicism that has all played into it and reinforced what makes Poland the way it is today. And because Catholicism is so prevalent and has such a long history, many events are centered around the Catholic calendar. You have Catholic holidays that are on the Catholic calendar are national holidays. In August, August 15th, is the Assumption of Mary into heaven. That's a national holiday. Everybody has off work. Everybody has a day off for school. It's, those are national holidays. The Body of Christ, Corpus Christi, all these things are national holidays. In public schools, they have a religion class where a nun comes in and teaches the, teaches the kids about how to use their catechism, how to get ready for First Communion. And this was a shared experience for all the kids in the school. When we were growing up there, our parents put us in the public school system for um, a few years to help, help us learn Polish and get to know people. And we were the only kids in the whole school who were not Catholic. So then the question came up, well, what do we do for religion class? And they're like, well, I guess you're, you're not Polish, so you're not Catholic, so it doesn't apply to you. So you can, you know, have a free hour for that time. So we had a free hour. In some days, the whole school day was a dress rehearsal for First Communion. And so we just got a free day. That was fun. But it's just, it's a shared experience that all these school kids have. And it's all tied in with the Catholic Church. And it's just the default and assumed and part of your upbringing. So it makes it very difficult for Polish people who are believers, who are born again, to know how to interact and relate with their families when you have so many events that are tied to the Catholic Church, so many family events. We have a Polish friend who is a believer who we were talking with her. She chose to attend her cousin's baby baptism Now, her cousin is an infant. He doesn't remember any of this. But she chose to attend because, in her words, if I didn't, my grandmother would literally find me and kill me. And she was joking about literally. But the point was, it would have been a huge offense to her grandmother whether or not she attended her cousin's baby baptism. And so in order to keep that relationship open, she chose to attend and just 
not be part of it, participate in anything. But how do you navigate those things when it's something that's maybe a little bit closer to home? Or, or maybe something that you really have, like you're, you're required to participate in. What do you do if your grandfather passes away? Every we- at every wedding and every funeral, the Mass is served, the Eucharist. What are you going to do when all the family there in the front row stands to come up to the priest to accept the Eucharist, but you can't? And so you stay seated. And, but just by staying seated, you're creating a huge offense to your family. How do you communicate that you still love them, you still care about them, you want to respect your grandfather, but you can't participate in the false teaching that they're, that they're doing with that? They need a lot of wisdom and a lot of discernment in knowing how to show love to their family, even in such difficult topics and difficult events that they have to navigate. In Poland, families, different families are different, and so they'll have different responses, but it is not unusual for a family to completely reject somebody who has turned away from the Catholic faith. Jesus' words really are taken seriously over there for people in this kind of context, where he says that if anybody comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. They have to be willing to turn their backs on everything they have grown up with and turn their backs on family to lose it all in order to follow Christ. So I'm not trying to just overload you with all this detail, but understanding the cultural context is very important wherever you're going to be ministering, whether that is in Poland or North Africa or South Carolina. You need to know the people that you're going to be ministering to in order to reach them. We want to go and to build bridges, not burn them and to build up walls. So when we first go, probably a strategy that we're not going to adopt is going in and starting to criticize and insult Pope John Paul II. Everything that he did and stood for, saying, oh, he did this wrong, this was bad, that's probably not going to get us very far. So how are we going to approach things when we get there? Well, we need to establish trust and credibility with people by building relationships with them over time. We need to bring them back to the Scriptures. That's one thing we've heard so often, even just... Uh, this morning, is that we need to get people into God's Word. Which as Catholics, they say they believe, but most of them have not studied, they're not really familiar with it, they don't read it for themselves. Getting them to look at God's Word, and then God can use His Word to work in people's hearts and to change them and draw them to Himself. So how are we going to achieve that? Well, in our video we mentioned some goals for our first term, but I wanted to expand on that a little bit. First of all, language study. We both really need to achieve a high level of fluency in Polish. And I'm very thankful that I am already conversationally fluent. When we were there, I was able to preach in Polish, and it's kind of a little rough around the edges, so I want to refine that, get up to a little bit higher level so I can go deeper into evangelistic conversations and counseling and all that. So there's still some work that I have ahead of me, but then especially for Claire, she's learned a little bit, but there's still a lot to learn. Poland, Polish is a very difficult language, and we want her to be able to be involved, be fully involved in the ministry as well. So 
that's going to be um, a big emphasis, especially early on, is working on the language. Then also, just evangelism and outreach. During our first term, we're going to be looking for ways to meet people, to build those relationships. Like I said, it's important to build that credibility that is needed because you're already labeled as a cult. You're an outsider. You're coming in and you're trying to show that you're teaching something different, but you're not just this weird cult leader. You're just trying to teach the Bible. And so establishing some of that credibility. And that will um, look in, may look in a number, we may do that in a number of different ways. Could be through teaching English, through volunteering at the local community center, through joining a board game group, just finding ways to meet people to build those relationships so that we can share the gospel with them. And in addition to that kind of personal outreach, also having an outreach online. So one of the missionaries we talked to said that one of the keys is to finding people, find the people who are searching. It is God who has to be at work first, drawing people to himself. So I want to help develop a nice website for my parents' church that has resources on it. So if somebody, if God's working in somebody's heart, they can find articles, maybe they answer questions that they might be having, sermons that they can download, they can listen to, and again, getting God's Word into their, into their lives. So they're hearing it, reading it, and so that God can use His Word to work in their hearts and to change them. And then third, discipleship. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, but we don't want to just leave them there for them to figure it out themselves. We want to help them grow in their sanctification through discipleship. And that's going to look through a number of different ways, whether that's a formal Bible study or just getting together for spiritual conversations and fellowship. We want to focus on that with the people who are in the church and people who come to know Christ as well. Then also just... We heard some about the realistic aspects of ministry and dealing with stuff. There are normal day-to-day needs that need to be met. Um, And so just helping out with my parents with building maintenance, um, mowing the grass, mopping the floors, all those things that my parents have been doing by themselves mostly for the last several decades We want to be able to help them out and take some of the load off of them for that. And then finally, looking for future ministry opportunities. Really, my burden is to plant another church where there is no gospel preaching church, at least within maybe about 30 minutes. And so while we're there, we're going to be looking for an open door where that might be so that we can get God's word, get a witness in another area where there is no other gospel preaching church. So looking at all that, will it be easy? No. We know that there will be many challenges. But will it be worth it? Absolutely. Proclaiming salvation alone through Jesus Christ is always worth it. And it might not always result in dramatic outward signs of success, but we are confident that God will accomplish His mission in Poland. Because he is both a powerful and a merciful God. And he has a burden for Poland. And he has a mission that he wants to accomplish there. And there is just 
such a huge need. So much work needs to be done. And we know that we cannot do it all ourselves. And we need, we need prayer. We need God's people to pray. We need God to do a work. Just to give a little bit of perspective on the state of the church in Poland and how few gospel-preaching churches there are. So Poland has a population of about 38 million people. Currently at 0.2% evangelical, they would need 100 new churches planted every single year with 100 members in each of those churches. So let's you, you need 100 churches planted with 100 members in each of those churches. How many years do you think it would take to get to 1% evangelical? It would take 36 years of 100 churches, of 100 members being planted every single year. It just is so daunting that I can't really even comprehend it. So this is something that we're not going to do ourselves. God has to be at work, and God has to be doing just a great work. And there's so much that needs to be done there in Poland. You may not think of it as being unreached, but it, it really is an unreached country that needs huge gospel witness. So as I said, I want to open up for some questions that you all might have. A frequent one we, a frequent one we get asked is, what does Polish sound like? So here is John 3.16 in Polish. And I can have my siblings stand up and say this too, but I won't make them do that. But John 3.16. Albowiem tak Bóg umiłował świat, że syna swego jednorodzonego dał, aby każdy, kto wen wierzy, nie zginął, ale miał żywot wieczny. Jan 3.16. John 3.16. Okay, everybody, let's say it. <laughs> No, it's a little bit of a tongue twister, but yes. Any questions that you all might have? That means either I was very clear or not clear at all. But. Yes? So with it being so Catholic, how legal is Christianity? Do you have any like, government watching over you? So the government is not hostile to us being there as missionaries. We can go in and plant a church and be open about it, and the government was not going to restrict us. Any pressure that you get is from a local level. Uh, the local priest will speak out against us. A lot of family pressure against somebody from turning away or going to this cult meeting. But the government itself, thankfully, is not hostile to us. So we can go there with religious freedom. Yes? There, yeah, there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees. So Poland currently has about 2.5 million Ukrainian refugees. So I said the population of Poland was 38 million. With the refugees, it's 40 million. <laughs> but that makes it about 5% of the total population of Poland is made up of just Ukrainian refugees. So that is a huge... That's been a large influence on Poland's economy. There are also a lot of opportunities for ministering to those refugees. 
And that's um, just a whole other aspect of it. But yeah, there are a lot of Ukrainian refugees that are there. And my parents have been very active with trying to minister to them. They have actually more Ukrainian refugees in their church services than Polish people at this point. Because there are so few Baptist churches or so few Christian churches that all the Ukrainian refugees that come over, they're looking for a church, and they see this church sign, and it's the only one in the area, then they, they just, they'll come to my parents' church. So, yes, there are a lot of refugees. Anything else? Well, yes. So, there's, we are, there's, there's a lot of hope for the younger generation that I would have. My parents haven't necessarily seen a lot of younger people coming to their church, and that could be a generational thing because, you know, they, the younger people see them as older, and so they're not as attracted to that. So I don't want to make promises that we're really going to be able to reach the younger people, but that is a hope and prayer that I do have because there is, you look at statistics and you'll see the older generation is maybe more like 70 or 60% who they attend Mass every week. And it declines as you go down to the younger generation. The younger generation still is considered the most Catholic or the most religious younger generation, young people in all of Europe, but they are less devout than their parents and then the older generation. So, and then a lot of them who grew up not under the influence of Pope John Paul II, and that's not, wasn't a key part of their experience growing up. There, I think there is a lot of opportunity that is there. And so that's something we're praying about. And I think there is a very good chance that in the next 10, 15 years, there could be a large shift. But our prayer is that it wouldn't be just a shift from Catholicism to atheism. And seeing all the problems in the Catholic Church, and then just turning away from religion completely. And I see that that very well could happen in the next couple decades. And so we are hoping that if we can have a witness over there that they can recognize the problems and not have quite as much ties from their their history that they could turn to faith. That's a long answer to your question, but my par- basically my parents haven't seen that necessarily, but statistics do show that that's a possibility, and we are hoping that we'll be able to see that in our ministry. Uh, being able to reach that younger generation. Yes, sir. Uh, my wife was raised Catholic, and we've been trying to minister to her family for 30, 40 years, and are looked at oftentimes as that, uh, that uh, uh, cult, whatever, uh, Protestants. Uh, do you have any, and one of the problems is many of them don't want to read their Bible because they'll be misunderstanding It's, yeah, it's, they're, from my understanding, they're not necessarily discouraged from reading their Bibles. They're just not encouraged to read it. And 
They, they are told that this is, you know, maybe confusing. If you have a question, come to the priest. He can help you understand it and explain it. Because they really do put the Bible and church tradition and the Catholic catechism, they have equal weight. If anything, the, the catechism has a little more weight because it's easier to understand and it's explaining the scriptures. So, um, they still believe it. You know, it has authority. They're saying they're grounded in it. But how they understand it and apply it is not encouraged for people to read it. So most people are going to be unfamiliar with it. But, but they would see it as an authoritative source. So hopefully, if we can point them back to the Scriptures, again, God can start using His Word to open their eyes and reveal that this is what it's actually saying. I've been told such and such. But I look at the Bible and this is what it says. So that is, that's our hope. That's our prayer. Anything else? Yes, sir. How has Poland changed culturally since you left to come to the U.S. for university? So I came to the university um, in 2008. So at that at this point, it's been 15 years. Uh, it has grown and developed a lot, a lot, modernized a lot in the last 15 years. As far as how has it changed culturally, um, I I, I don't know how to answer that. I don't think it's changed a whole lot culturally other than just becoming more modern and maybe the younger generation is less devout to Catholicism. They're still practicing, but maybe they'll, they'll see it more as they do this because it's a family thing, not because they necessarily believe it. But I don't think there has been a huge cultural shift. There's maybe a slow, slight change, but not a, not a dramatic shift. Yes, sir? How many people attend your parents' church? Uh, it has gone up and down. Uh, as far as Polish people right now, I think they have maybe three or so who are currently attending. Uh, Ukrainian refugees, last I heard, they had maybe 15 or so. But it's, it's always it's fluctuated some, and most of the people who've attended haven't necessarily been believers. So they come and they check it out, but they're not committed to stay. So it's always been quite small. Yes, sir? You mentioned about um, developing a website. Uh, would you also use uh, mediums of messages going out? Yes, um, I mean I'm I'm not close to that idea. Um, I I don't have a plan for that yet, just because I know so many different things can take up so much time. So I don't know what we would do. Kind of starting first with the website um, and maybe branching off from there. But I would definitely love if somebody you know had extra expertise in that, I'd be willing to hear and, and get some help, but that's not, don't have specific plans for that yet, but open to such expansion, yeah. Anything else? Well, I wanted to leave us just ending our conference with uh, looking at God's Word real briefly 
And I'll have the scripture passages on the screen just for the sake of time. But the first one I wanted to look at is just a reminder of the need for missions and the hope that this mission has. And that's the first, the verse there is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 through 38. We read, when, when he saw the crowds, this is Jesus, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now this is a passage that is so familiar to us that I feel like we might miss this emphasis. But I think it's very important to notice. Now we can definitely use this as an encouragement. The harvest is plenteous, the laborers are few. Therefore, we need more laborers calling you all, go out, be, la- be these laborers to share the gospel. And that's a good application of this. But if you look at the passage, look at where the emphasis is. First off, who was it who felt compassion? It's Jesus. He is the one who looked out and He had compassion on the people. Jesus was the one who has the burden to see people saved. It was His burden before it was ever my burden. And then, who is it who's going to be fulfilling the need? Now he says, he gives an exhortation to pray, but what does he say? He doesn't say, pray that people will be saved. Again, a good application. But he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that He will send out laborers into whose harvest? His harvest. He's the one who is burdened for the harvest. He's the Lord of the harvest. This is His harvest. And we go out and we are just the messengers. We are just laborers working in His harvest. This is not about Tim and Claire reaching Poland. It's not about Tim and Lizzie reaching North Africa or uh, Tim and Rachel reaching the whole world. It's about God. (laughs) All six continents and possibly the seventh. It's about God accomplishing His mission to see people saved. Because this is God's burden. And there's something we know about God is that He will accomplish His burden. He will accomplish His mission. We look at ourselves and our strength. It's so feeble. And we go in and we look how many churches need to be planted every year for however many decades in order to reach 1% in Poland. And it would be very similar for Morocco. All the work that needs done, we can't do this. And the encouragement we get from the Scripture is that this is not on our shoulders. We have a responsibility, but it is not us who do the work. The next passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7-9 through So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow laborers, fellow workers. You are God's field, 
God's building. Just a couple things to note. It's God who causes the growth. Not the one who is not the one who is watering, the one who is planting. It is God who causes the growth. Then also, we look at that. We look at the verse 8, the end of it, where it says, each will receive his wages according to his labor. Normally we think that the reward comes from the harvest. The person who is working, he's planting a garden, he's rewarded when he gets the harvest. But he's... The passage is saying we're not rewarded according to the harvest because that is in the Lord's hands. We're rewarded according to our labors. Because we're laboring together. We're working together with God. We have a responsibility to labor and to work faithfully. But we are not judged based on the fruits. Because that is in God's hands. We're working together with God to accomplish this. But in a very real sense, this is not up to us to accomplish this mission. It's on God. He's the one who's going to be causing the growth. And there are many ways that we are responsible to be active and to be involved. As he says earlier, praying that He'll send out labors into the harvest. We're supposed to be praying that God's Spirit will be at work when we share the Gospel. Praying for opportunity. There's so many ways that we are called to be active. We can't use this as an excuse to say, well, if people are going to be saved, then God has to save them. No. We're fellow workers with God in accomplishing this great mission. So what does that mean? That means... That if we have an opportunity, we need to take advantage of that. Because we know that this is God who's doing the work. And we look at ourselves and we think, well, I don't have all the answers. I just, I, I, I can't share the gospel in the best way. I mean, what if I, I, I lose track? I'm going through the Romans road and I forget something. It's not up to you to save the person. It's up to you to plant and to water, and to faithfully labor. And yes, there is a place for studying and learning and figuring out how to share the gospel best and looking for those opportunities. But this is God accomplishing His mission. And if we have a burden to be fellow workers with God in accomplishing it, He'll use us in whatever means that we can be involved. Through prayer, through giving, facilitating other people to go. This is something that is so great, so far beyond us, that we can't fully grasp how God is using everybody, everybody's ministry. You're you're just one time that you get to share the gospel, but you never see that person again. But God can take up that person and have somebody else be able to share the gospel again. He's he's accomplishing his great mission in ways that we will never be able to fully understand on this earth. So take that as an encouragement to be participating in this great mission, knowing that you are not doing it in your own strength. But it is God who is giving the increase, that is God who is the one who's causing growth. So don't be discouraged when you do share the gospel. 
and it's not received. God may use that witness and have that be put on top of somebody else's witness and bring some other situation in that person's life all to bring them to Christ. This is something that is so far beyond us so that when we go out, I want to encourage you, when we go out of the doors today, don't just look and think, well, we we need to pray for Morocco or for Poland or for camps abroad and the ministries they have. This is something that all Christians should be part of. Taking the gospel and sharing it because this is a mission for the church. And it's a mission that we have divine enabling and God is at work to accomplish it and He wants us to be faithfully sharing it. So that's the encouragement. To not go away and just think, oh, God is, you know, there's such a need across the globe. There's a need in Clemson, South Carolina for the gospel to be shared. And do not fear that you can't do it the best way because God is going to do it and He wants you to be participating and He will accomplish it. He's not limited by our weaknesses. He works through them and He does great things in spite of them because God is the one who gives the increase. So when we go out today, just be encouraged. Be reminded of the need, but at the same time be encouraged that this is something that we can do, but not because we are qualified, but it's because we can do this because God is the one who is doing it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for Your Word, for the encouragements in Your Word that this is something, the the, the message that we have is such a wonderful good news. We thank You for the encouragements from Your Word that this is not completely on our shoulders, but that this is something that You are passionate about. This is Your burden, and You are the one who's going to accomplish it. And You are looking for faithful fellow workers who will labor together with You to see the gospel shared and to see your good news go forth into all the nations. Help everyone here to have a burden for the lost across the globe and across the street for their neighbors and for the churches in all the countries across the world. Help us to not lose that burden, but to be reminded that this is the good news that needs shared. Please help us and enable us to take this message. In Jesus' name, amen.